First uh, Samuel chapter 14. First Samuel chapter 14. Well, we saw last week that God has done a great miracle. You know, he used uh, Jonathan and his assistant to strike fear into the Philistine army, and then God sends an earthquake that just starts a rout of the entire Philistine army. And you know, this is the, the perfect opportunity to saw, for Saul to wake up and repent, right? You know, for the Lord's trying to get his attention, you know, it's a great opportunity for him to go, you know what, I'm going to stop being stubborn, I'm going to yield to the Lord, I'm going get, to get this right, and then let's, let's go and follow the Lord to victory. But instead of being an example of servant leadership, Saul refuses to acknowledge his wrongdoing. And why is that? We're going to see Saul's chief downfall. It's that he's more concerned with how the people see him than how God sees him. And in his stubbornness, he turns what should have been and was a miracle into a burden upon the people. So chapter 14, we begin in verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. Remember verse 33, we ended last week, so the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed over unto Beth-Avon. But the very next statement is, and the men of Israel were distressed that day. For Saul had adjured the people saying, cursed be the man that eats any food until evening that I may be avenged on mine enemies. And so none of the people tasted any food. And all the other land came to a wood, and there was honey upon the ground. And when the people were come unto the wood, behold, the honey dropped. But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath. Wherefore, he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand, and dipped it in a honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes were enlightened." And then answered one of the people and said, your father straightly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man that eats any food this day. And the people were faint. And then said Jonathan, my father has troubled the land. See, I pray you how mine eyes have been enlightened because I have tasted a little of this honey. Here we see that Saul makes the people swear a foolish oath. In verse 24, the men of Israel were distressed that day. Why? Because Saul made them make this promise. The word distressed, it means oppressed, hard-pressed, to experience hardship and trouble. It's usually a word that's used by when Israel's enemies are ruling over them. So and who was oppressing them? It tells us Saul was. For he had, King James says, adjured. It means to make someone bind themselves with an oath. He had made them make a promise, made them swear that they would not eat any food until the evening. For what purpose? So that I may be avenged on mine enemies. Wow. This is all about you, Saul? When did this all become about you and your enemies, How is this personal vengeance more important than his nation's freedom? You know, before we even begin tonight in in earnest, can I just urge you to beware of leaders that make it about themselves? Always beware of leaders who make it about themselves because they may promise you freedom, but they will always bind you in chains as strong as any enemy. For what God designed to be an awesome day of victory Saul made a day of exhaustion, for it says none of the people tasted any food. By forcing everyone to uh, make this oath, they didn't eat and they were exhausted. 
And so instead of rejoicing in what God had done, they felt the burden to fulfill the self-interested needs of their king. And so verse 25, all day of the land, they came to a wood as they're chasing the Philistines, and it says there was honey upon the ground. And when the people were coming to the wood, behold, the honey dropped, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. All they have the land, those are Israelis, the land belongs to them. So those who had come to Saul's aid, remember when everything happened, even though Saul only had about 3,000 troops, or I'm sorry, about 600 men, he started with 3,000, he had about 600 men. Remember the Israelis started coming out of the caves, those who had been captured by the Philistines and forced to work, they started fighting against the Philistines. And so all these people have been flocking to Saul as they're pursuing the Philistines. And it says, when all they have the land came to the wood, honey began to Drop, it means to ooze onto the ground. In uh, non-cultivated areas of the promised land, it was very common for beehives to become too full and, the, and then they would you know, crack and split or the, the honey would just start to stream and it would pool on the ground. And so as they entered into this wood, they were, the honey had dripped and it was just sitting on the ground in these pools of honey. You know, it, God, it's like God had provided food for them, sustenance so they could keep up the chase. And But it says, no man put his hand to his mouth. Uh, the phrase there, put, is an interesting word. It means to stretch out to connect two things, hand to mouth in this case. In other words, God didn't make it complicated. He had provided a simple solution so they could have victory over their enemies, and yet the people feared to take hold of this simple solution because they believed God would punish them if they violated their promise. You know, my, uh, my pastor, very first pastor, very godly man, but he came from a uh, kind of a holiness uh, background. And, uh, and so it was so funny, whenever we'd be playing cards, he'd give us a hard time because that was the devil's game, you know? And uh, it's funny because one time somebody uh, brought him a, a card table, but for the purpose of like storing stuff, and he's like, no, I can't take it. And it was just a different way of thinking back then. And, uh, you know, but... When you look at some of the things, you know, that I've seen in that side of, of Christianity, um, they can be very um, enslaving, very enslaving. And it is very sad when we add rules that burden men in a moment when God wants to bless. Now, let me make something very clear. <laughs> This does not mean that God doesn't have standards or that it's okay to violate the standards he does have. That's not what I'm saying. The point is that God would never have told them not to eat until one man's desire for revenge was sated. He would have never told them that. And so this was something that God had designed to be a blessing, and now they couldn't partake of it out of fear. But one person wasn't there when Saul made all the people promises. If you remember, Jonathan went on this attack without telling his father. And so at some point, we don't know where, they link back up again. And Jonathan, because he did not hear, verse 27, but Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath, heard not. We don't know why Jonathan and his assistant weren't there when this oath time came, but he wasn't. And so because of that, he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand, the walking staff he was having. He didn't even, they weren't stopping for anything. And so as he was just moving along, he dipped it in, kind of like a Tootsie Pop and moved on. Somebody knows what a Tootsie Pop is, apparently. <clears throat> like, wake up. 
and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes were enlightened. Uh, the word there means brightened up. He was energized. And you know, that is something you need if you're in hot pursuit of the enemy, you know? You know, if you're in hot pursuit of the enemy, being exhausted is not a benefit, you know? When I'm out, you know, I don't do this anymore. I have children that do it. But when I used to be out mowing the lawn, my wife would frequently come out and say, have you had any water anytime recently, you know? And of course, what do I say, you know? I'm fine, I'm fine, you know? And, and of course, you know, I'm getting exhausted, you know, and getting dehydrated. And, you know, you need those things. And uh, I don't know how I turned the lawn into an enemy, but you get the point. <laughs> the idea is this blessing from God became a burden because of Saul's selfishness. Verse 28, then answered one of the people and said, your father straightly charged the people with an oath saying, curse be the man that eats any food this day. And the people were faint. Can you imagine what it was like to see Jonathan when you all know the promise you made and he's dipping down and he's, you know, eating and he's just got that extra burst of strength and you're thinking, whew, you know, it's kind of the way I am when people eat ice cream, right? I can't have ice cream, so. Like, what? Seeing someone else being able to eat when you couldn't was so very discouraging. You know, Jonathan probably even wondered why they weren't eating. And so they tell him, your dad made us made a pro- make a promise. And when Jonathan hears why, he immediately recognizes that his father's oath has brought awful consequences. For it says the people were faint, means in a state of weakness or exhaustion. Can you imagine trying to take on the Philistines if they eventually catch up to him at this point? And so Jonathan critiques his father's oath. Then said Jonathan, verse 29, my father has troubled the land. See, I pray you, how mine eyes have been enlightened because I tasted a little of this honey. This oath is messed up is what he's saying. My dad's oath is messed up. God planned to do so much more for Israel on this day. How much more, he says, if happily, verse 30, the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they now found. For had there not been now a much greater slaughter amongst the Philistines? He says, God wanted to do so much more for Israel this day, but my father's actions will both take away that and create new problems. Verse 31, and they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. Aijalon is about 14 miles west of Jerusalem. It's a city in the hills of Ephraim that belonged to the tribe of Dan. It was very close to the Philistine border, but not very far from Michmash. The Philistines are routed. They're fleeing. And that's as far as the Israelites could push them? Instead of crushing the Philistines, this just pushed them back to the borders that existed after Samuel's victory just 10 years back. And so while this was a big victory, it didn't give Israel any new land. The Philistines would still be a major problem. And yet, that's not the only new problem that Saul's created. Look at verse 32. And the people, this is after they finally, you know, know, end the fighting for that day and it's come nighttime. Now they're allowed to eat. And this is the people flew upon the spoil uh, when you're routed like this, there's no time to grab your stuff. So whatever flocks, foodstuffs, whatever they left behind, uh, the people flew upon the spoil and they took sheep and oxen and calves and they slew them on the ground and the people did eat them with the blood. Now, 
I read this, you know, as a kid, you know, and I thought to myself, gross, you know, they're just animals, they kill the animals, and they're just eating it without even cooking it. That's not what's going on here, okay? The phrase on the ground, it means they didn't go through the process of bleeding the animal out before they carved it up and then cooked it, okay? They carved it up as soon as it was dead and started cooking the, the meat. So they ate it with the blood still in it. Now, Leviticus 19.26 clearly forbids this. This is a command from God. In Leviticus 19.26, he told Israel this. He said, you shall not eat anything with the blood. So there's no confusion about what God wants them to do here. So here's the crazy thing. By enforcing a command, Saul, by enforcing a command God didn't give, Saul stumbled the people into disobeying a command God did give. And that is a big problem. It's a problem with legalism. It's a problem with adding to the word of God. It's a problem with making it about you and your ideas and your ideology instead of just sticking to the scripture. In James chapter three, verses one and two, it tells us, let there not be many teachers among you, for you shall receive the greater condemnation. And then it goes on in verse 2, and it says, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. When it's explaining, let there not be many teachers or leaders among you, because we receive the greater judgment, there's a greater uh, accountability before the Lord if you're a leader representing him. He explains why. Because in many things we offend all. And particularly, if any man does not offend in word, the same as a perfect or whole or mature man, he's able to bridle the whole body. The idea is it's very easy when you're in a place where you're speaking before people to mess up and misrepresent the Lord, to interject yourself and to get in the way. And so it's something, leadership, speaking for the Lord, representing the Lord that should be done with great humility. You know, in Luke 17, we read in our scripture reading, Jesus echoed those words. You know, he said, you know, it's impossible, but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. You know, the thought that something I might say might stumble someone's faith, that's, that's huge. That's huge. You know, we, we pray before we come into the service and somebody prayed for me tonight, you know, help will not to be nervous. I am, not, I am by nature introverted, and while I have grown used to public speaking, because I've been doing this for 25 years, that's not something I gravitate towards. I would much rather be in, in the background, you know, stacking chairs somewhere. But as they prayed that, I thought to myself, Lord, I still fear the idea of me misrepresenting you. It's impossible that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It'd be better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he, cast in, he be cast into the sea and that he should offend one of these little ones. The moment a leader forgets that the people he's leading are God's kids and not his own or her own, that's when you get into trouble. You know, I love the parable that Jesus, or the story Jesus tells. Which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him by and by when he is coming to the field, go and sit down to eat? No master would do that. He says what Jesus said here. Will he not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I can sup and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken and afterward you shall eat and drink? Then you can eat and drink. 
If you want to be a good leader, you feel a call from God to be a leader, then you need to recognize that it's not about you. You're a servant. It's not about what you want or how you want the people you lead to view you. None of those things matter. What matters is how people see the Lord. That's what matters. Doesn't matter what my legacy is. Doesn't matter what, what people think about me. You know? He's unintelligent. Oh, okay, as long as you love Jesus more, you can think whatever you want about me. I remember Pastor Romaine used to come up and, at, at the Bible college and he would talk to us and, you know, and they'd say, Pastor Romaine, you know, what do you want us to call you? And he said, call me stupid. I don't care. Just listen to the word when I teach it. He was an ex-Marine drill sergeant, and so he was very blunt. But he loved the Lord. He didn't want to misrepresent the Lord. Because what matters is how people see the Lord. You know, when I make it about me, people do see something about the Lord, the wrong thing. (laughs) They see God as cruel or callous or unreasonable, like Saul did here. They see God as someone who lays burdens on people rather than blessings. And when people sense that as a characteristic or trait of the Lord, they resent his commands. You know, it's why Ephesians 6, 4 exists, where it says, you know, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. It's why Ephesians 6, 9 exists. And that one I can't quote, so I gotta look that one up. It's about masters and servants, but I wanna make sure I get it right. Ephesians 6, 9, it says, and you masters do the same thing unto your servants, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, and neither is there any respect of persons with him. It's why 1 Peter 3, 7 exists, which tells husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding. It's why 1 Peter 5, 2, and 3 exists, where it challenges pastors to feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, and not for greedy gain, but of a ready mind. And neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. All these passages exist that tell us, don't make it about you. I remember when I had my first teenager, my first child became a teenager, and there were, I didn't give birth to anyone. My wife did all that. And, you know, I was facing some unique challenges with myself. Of course, you think it's them. And I remember my wife who, you know, sensed that things needed to be different and better with me. She said, I want you to read this book. It was called Age of Opportunity. And uh, the first two chapters rocked my world. He said, moms, dads, if you're making your parenting about you, about the need to feel respected, the need to feel this or that, the other thing, you're starting off on the wrong foot and you will fail. So much repentance needed to take place. All these verses exist here so that we don't make it about us. Leaders must be servants so others can see how gracious, awesome, loving, good, faithful, and holy the Lord is. Is that a heavy thing? Yes. That's why James 3.1 exists. Let there not be many leaders among you. One of the things we ask when we do our premarital counseling and we look at the, 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 the man who's in front of me, I say, are you ready to lead this family? Are you ready to die to self? That's your job. 
Your job is to die. Are you ready to die? And it's funny, you get the look back sometimes. I don't know. Well, you need to figure it out before you say, I do, because you shouldn't unless you're ready to die. You know, what's the difference between a boy and a man? A boy thinks it's still about him. A man understands he gave that up a long time ago. It's never been about him. He was created to give his life away. Because Saul didn't do that. He stumbled the people. And so when the people are in sin, the tribal leaders take the issue to Saul. Look at verse 33 of 1 Samuel 14. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people sin against the Lord, and that they eat with the blood. And so Saul said, You have transgressed. Roll a great stone unto me this day. The word there, transgressed, it means to be unfaithful, to betray your part of a commitment. You know, while God made many unconditional covenants with Israel, we talked about those when we were studying the return of the Lord on, on Sunday mornings a few weeks ago. While God made many unconditional covenants with Israel, the covenant of the law was conditional. God would bless them if they obeyed. And so Saul is telling them, you're not doing your part. You, you have violated your part of the deal, which is nuts because he's ignoring his own violations that put them in this mess to begin with. So Saul says, I'll fix this. Roll a stone unto me this day. Bring a big rock here so we can properly butcher these animals and let the blood drain out so God won't judge us. And so verse 34, Saul said, disperse yourselves amongst the people and say unto them, bring me hither every man his ox and every man his sheep and slay them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord in eating with the blood. And so all the people brought every man his ox with him that night and slew them there. Once the rock's in place, he sends orders out to have the people bring the animals. They were killing for food to him. And, and, and so they forestall God's judgment. For it says in verse 35 that Saul built an altar unto the Lord. The same was the first altar that he built unto the Lord. And so when God does not judge the nation for violating uh, the law, Saul recognizes the Lord's graciousness publicly. He has an altar built, and he thanks the Lord. Now, it's interesting. Altars, obviously, when we think of them, we think of sacrifices, and, and they were usually constructed to make offerings, usually constructed for these sacrifices. However, when we read in the Old Testament, sometimes these altars were memorials just to thank the Lord. You know, I think of, of Jacob when he came back from Laban, his father-in-law, and he come, came back home, and he's really worried about Esau, and everything works out. And it says right after that, he built an altar to the Lord, but it doesn't mention any sacrifices. It was just a memorial, something to say, thank you. Thank you, Lord. And so that's what Saul's doing here. He's wanting everybody to know, hey, we're very thankful the Lord was merciful and that he spared us. You know, some suggest Paul, Saul uh, built this to thank God for victory over the Philistines. I personally think it's because he wanted to thank God for not judging them. But all we know for sure from the Scripture is that this is the first time God had never, uh, that Saul had ever done something like this. I don't think that's a good comment. <laughs> I think it's good to mark God's work in your life in special ways so that you never forget it. You know, I, I have special things, you know, all, all a part of my life that are reminders to me. This bracelet here is a reminder. My wife gave it to me. Originally, I was at a conference, and it was just one of those kind of rubber 
bands that they give you to know what lunch you have, you know. And, but it had on the phrase, steps of faith. Anyway, I won't tell you the whole story, but it, that conference had a big impact upon my life, and so I wouldn't take it off. I left it on because I wanted that constant reminder, just take another step, Will. And, and so my wife got me something a little bit more permanent <laughs> uh, to remind me. It's good to have those things. So I can't know Saul's heart. I don't know if he really was doing this just to save face with the people or he was genuinely thankful. We'll assume the right thing because that's what the Bible tells us to do. But recognizing God's grace toward the nation does not mean Saul ever sought God's grace for his own sin. Look at verse 36. Verse 36, and Saul said, this is after they've eaten, let us go down after the Philistines by night. Let's not, let's not waste any time. And let's spoil them until the morning light. Let's not leave a man of them. Let's kill them all. And so they said, well, do whatsoever seems good unto you. They had eaten. They were ready to fight now. And so, but then said the priest, let us draw near hither unto God. <laughs> you know, Saul is still very determined to take personal vengeance on the Philistines. I don't want any of them getting out of here alive. And now that everyone's finally eaten, they're on board with Saul's plan. But the high priest suggests, hey, maybe we should seek God about this. Like everything we've been doing so far, we haven't sought God about at all. Maybe we should seek God about this. Now, the reason that Saul probably didn't think about that is because every time prior to this that Saul had sought the Lord, God wasn't answering. You know, the phone just went to voicemail every time. And when God caused the earthquake, if you remember, Saul initially told the priest to bring the ark and to seek the Lord. But he interrupted the priest before he could get an answer from God because reports kept coming in that the Philistines were routed. And so Saul finally said, no, we got this. We don't need to find out what God wants us to do. We need to go chase him down. And of course, then what does he do? He makes the silly oath, the foolish oath. And so now he's in this pickle where they're going to get away. And so the priest is thinking, time out. How about we seek the Lord and find out what he wants us to do? Things have not gone well with us ignoring the Lord. We should not continue that trend. And Saul submits to this wisdom. Verse 37. And Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he answered him, not that day. How was he seeking this counsel? We don't know for sure. Many Bible uh, students believe that it was through the Urim and the Thummim, the, the uh, objects that God told Moses to make that would be uh, means of discerning the will of the Lord. We don't know exactly what these two items were, but most agree that they were two stones kept in the high priest's coat, that one stood for yes and the other no. But you know, silence has been the Lord's response to Saul for months because Saul refused to repent of making the offering without Samuel. He would never come clean about that. But here's what happens when you're prideful and stubborn. Saul assumes it's someone else's fault. He assumes someone in the army violated the promise I made him swear. Look at verse 38. And Saul said, draw you near hither all the chief of the people, and know and see wherein this sin has been this day. For as the Lord lives, which saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people that answered him. 
The word there, when he starts off, he said, come draw near and know. It means discover and find out who committed sin. That's the only reason that this could be happening, that God won't speak to me as someone in the army sinned. And he says, for as the Lord lives, and that's about the strongest oath you can make as an Israeli. Israel's God is the living God. He's not some lifeless statue, some totem or idol. He is real. And this was a common way of saying that your commitment was as serious as God is real. For as the Lord lives, which saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. Now, Saul may speak bold words, but his bravado is foolish again. First off, Jonathan wasn't even there to make this oath. So if he ate something, the only wounded thing would have been Saul's pride because he didn't go against anything he promised to do because he didn't promise to do anything. And second, (laughs) everyone knew his son Jonathan had eaten the honey. But since he'd been the catalyst for this great victory, none believed him worthy to die. So they say nothing. But there was not a man among all the people that answered him. And that does not sit well with King Saul. Look at verse 40. Then he said unto all Israel, Be you all on one side. He was Floridian. You all. Everybody's awake still, right? Be you all. That's what ye means. That's what ye. It's, it's a Floridian Greek word. You all. Be you all on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said unto Saul, Do what seems good unto you. I think they hoped Saul, when he learned it was Jonathan, that he would change his mind, or at the very least, uh, they, they knew none of them were in trouble. Oh, go ahead. We, know, we didn't do anything. And therefore, verse 41, Saul said unto the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. Alliterate means bring forth the innocent. And it says that Saul and Jonathan were taken, captured, but the people escaped. Again, I don't know what the Urim and the Thummim did. I don't know how it worked exactly, but through this process, They were allowed to go free. They would not be able to be accused anymore. And now Jonathan and Saul are captured. They they are still under accusation because of how this went out. Now, that must have shocked Saul because he knew he hadn't eaten anything, but he also knew he wasn't innocent. And so he's going to try to save face, though, by writing this plan to its bitter end, even if it costs him his son. And so Saul said, verse 42, cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son, and Jonathan was taken. Verse 43, then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I did but taste a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, and lo, I must die. It almost sounds at first like he's minimizing his actions. I did but taste, but that's not what it says in the original Hebrew. I think I said Greek earlier, Hebrew. Literally what he says is, I surely did taste because anybody with a right mind was going to eat. We're going to fight. I did taste. I'm not going to apologize for it. And lo, now I must die. Jonathan's not running or, or running from it, the, the consequences or minimizing what he did. He owns it even though he did nothing wrong. Behold, is what he's saying, I must die for eating this little bit of honey. Probably hoping that his father would snap out of it and come to his senses and go, you know what, guys, this is on me. I made you make a stupid promise. I don't know if this is the case, 
But given Jonathan's previous statements about his father's wrongdoing, I do wonder if there's a challenge in his reply. Now you have to kill me for your own pride, father. Is that what you're really going to do? And Saul's angry reply seems to imply that that's how he took it from Jonathan. Look at verse 44. And Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. That is a powerful statement. God do so and more also. What more can God do than kill me? It's only one thing. Send you to hell. I mean, what worse can God do than kill you? That's it. I got to die now, I guess, Dad, huh? For your stupid pride. Yeah, Jonathan, and God, not just kill me, but send me to hell if that doesn't happen. Whew. It's getting a little tense. Here's the crazy part. Saul is more willing to kill his son for violating a command he didn't know about and God didn't give than he is to obey a command from the Lord. And rather than confess his pride and his own sin, he'd rather save face with the people by going through with this awful commitment. Well, the people are having none of this, and they stand up to Saul, verse 45. And the people said unto Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid. The phrase means never. Ah, uh-uh, we make our own promise, Saul. We're not letting you kill him. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has wrought with God this day. And so the people rescued Jonathan, that he did not die. I love what they said here. For he has worked with God today. Jonathan isn't opposed to God, Saul. Can't you see that? Him eating honey isn't why God isn't speaking to you. And you know, I love that Jonathan's testimony was so well known for his character that the people knew that even though he had violated this oath, even though he didn't make one, they knew that he hadn't violated anything the Lord asked him to do. I want my testimony to be that I'm someone who works together with the Lord, don't you? I want somebody to say that, well, he, he works with the Lord. He's not doing his own thing, you know? That I'm a part of what he's doing rather than doing my own thing. You know, is that your testimony? In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus, you know, said, let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven, Right? Don't you want that to be your testimony? I do. Well, Saul's still the king, though. But why would on earth would he let the people do this? I think verse 46 gives us a clue. It says in verse 46, Then Saul went up from following the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Saul stopped the pursuit. He actually doesn't blame Jonathan for this. He knows why God's not speaking to him. See, Saul presumed originally that God wouldn't answer him about whether he should pursue the Philistines because someone violated the oath he made them take. But that's not true. God hadn't been speaking to Saul for months. He hadn't been speaking to Saul long before he made the people take that oath. He knew it was because of Saul's unconfessed sin, his own unconfessed sin at Gilgal. And my guess is that when Saul consulted the Lord with this question, after Jonathan was revealed to be guilty, my guess is that God still remained silent, thus confirming the truth. This has nothing to do with Jonathan, Saul. This is about you. 
It's by your disobedience. And thus, without God's blessing, Saul could neither pursue the Philistines nor use his authority as a king to kill Jonathan. And thus, the Philistines get away, all because of his stubbornness. A far lesser result than the one that God wanted to give Israel, but it was still a huge victory. Look at verse 47. And so Saul took the kingdom over Israel. The word there, took, means captured or seized. Remember when Samuel came to Saul, right after Saul did the offering without Samuel, and what did Samuel tell Saul? Your kingdom is taken from you. We usually think that that's a reference to David, you know, who's going to be the new king. Samuel also said to Saul that your family will not be a dynasty. But he didn't say that David was going to take the kingdom from him yet. That comes later on. Here he says, your kingdom will be taken from you. And it had been for months. The Philistines were in charge. And so, just as Samuel told Saul that he would lose the kingdom because of his sin, he did. And after the Philistines were routed, Saul changed the way he ruled. He was going to make sure no one ever did this to him again. And so he captured, he seized the kingdom over Israel, and he fought against all his enemies. Notice, not the Lord's enemies. His enemies on every side, against Moab and against the children of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines, and whithersoever he turned himself, he vexed them. This was not the Lord's enemies, but his personal enemies, and when he fought them, he didn't just defeat them, he vexed them. The word there means to inflict punishment for all of their past attacks on Israel. He was determined that no one would ever rip the kingdom from him again. From this moment forward, we will no longer see Saul as that humble, small-minded king. He will expand his authority, and he will make himself into a powerful ruler in the region. Verse 48, and he gathered a host. It literally means he acquired power. He acquired might. Prior to this, Saul had been a very small man. When Samuel confronts him later on, and he tells him that the kingdom's going to be taken from him and given to, to, to another house, he tells him, he says, when you were small in your own eyes, did not God bless you? Everything changed here. Everything changed here for Saul. He said, no one's taking this from me again. Not my enemies and not the Lord. He became a different kind of king. He strengthened himself, and he also smote the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of them that spoiled them. The Amalekites didn't even own any land. They were a marauding people who raided Israel frequently. That Saul took the fight to them was something no Israeli leader had done prior to this. We'll learn about that victory more in chapter 15, but for now, the writer wants to tell us the status after Saul strengthened his position, the status in the kingdom. And so in verses 49 through 52, we just kind of get that status report. It says, now the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Ishui and Melchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger was Michael. And of course, Michael will become uh, one of David's wives. We'll meet her a little bit more later. Um, Saul had at least four sons. Only three are listed here. It is possible that his other son that we know of, Ishbosheth, is left out here because he is too young to be considered a man yet. That's a possibility. Verse 50, in the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimeaz, and the name of the captain of his host was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. We had met Saul's uncle earlier when he had first came back from Samuel telling him that he was going to be king over Israel. So 
Nair's son was Abner, uh, Saul's cousin and his famous general. We'll also get to know him a little bit better uh, better later on in 1 Samuel. In verse 51, Kish was the father of Saul, and Nair, the father of Abner, was the son of Abdiel. Verse 52, and there was sore war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. When Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him unto him. Sore war means all-out war. No more capitulation, no more agreements, no more you leave us at peace if we give you, you know, our swordsmiths and our blacksmiths and all that kind of stuff. No, no, no. No more agreements, no more treaties, no more peace. It was just all-out war from this moment forward. And when you wage a war like that, you need men to fight it. And so gone are the days of this small standing army in Israel of 3,000 men. Saul had finally led them to do what they had wanted him to do from the beginning, to make them like the other nations around them. And so he took their sons and brought them into his army. And Israel, that executive government expanded to a place where Saul now becomes that tyrant that we see him later on in the book of 1 Samuel. So... Trouble, 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 trouble. That's what Saul caused. And none of this was God's intent. But that's what happens when your heart is stubborn and pride-filled. When you and I try to hold on to what we've attained rather than humble ourselves before God and trust in his mercy. I am fully convinced that after Samuel confronted Saul, if Saul had repented and said, Samuel, you're right, I blew it. I feared the people. I wanted to be seen right in their eyes. I didn't want them to leave me. They were fleeing left and right, and I got afraid. And I got my eyes on the wrong things. I'm sorry. Can we go to the Lord together about this and make this right? I am absolutely convinced that the Lord would have forgiven Saul and shown him mercy. But when you refuse to trust in his mercy and you decide, I'm going to take care of this, I'm going to fix the fix I fixed myself with, well, When you do that, that's the heart of a troublemaker because you're just gonna create more and more and more trouble as you try to fix the trouble that you've been fixed with. And while none of us are kings here tonight, not that I know of, I see the same mistake over and over again in people's businesses, their families, and their ministries. Guys, all of us fail. In 1 John chapter 2, it tells us, my little children, these things are written unto you so you don't sin. God has a clear standard. He desires obedience. He desires us to, to walk in obedience. He desires that to be, you know, a mark of our lives, that when people see us, that we are holy like him. The rest of that verse says, but and if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous, Amen. And earlier in 1 John 1, 9, he tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there are two options, other options besides confession that you can employ. 1 John 1, 7, and I think 1 John 1, or 1 John 1, 8, and I think 1 John 1, 10 are those other responses. We could say we have no sin, or we could say we have not sinned. We could say, well, I'm not the type of person you're saying I am. I'm better than that. We have no sin. Or we could say, I didn't do anything wrong. I have not sinned. 
But here's the result when we do that. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He forgives us, he restores us, he uses us again. But if we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves. Truth is not in us. That's what Saul did. I mean, how do you get to a place where you're chasing your own son-in-law around the entire country trying to kill him? Because you've deceived yourself. Or even greater, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And this is the attitude that Saul is cultivating here, creating more and more trouble for himself and for the nation. So, if you want to be a blessing to those around you instead of trouble, (laughs) confess your sins. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Because as you do that, his blood is going to be washing you and cleansing you. The Lord knows our frame that we're simply dust. We come to him and we go, Lord, this is what I was thinking and it was the wrong way to think and I made a bad decision. I sinned. I blew it. I took matters into my own hands and I'm sorry. I want to make it right. He is faithful. He is righteous. And he'll forgive you and he'll wash you. Amen? That's how we can be a blessing to those we lead rather than being more troublemakers like Saul. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, you said, blessed are the peacemakers. You didn't say blessed are the troublemakers. We don't want to be troublemakers, Lord. We don't want to be those who are pride-filled and stubborn and therefore bring trouble upon ourselves, deceive ourselves and call you a liar. And then, Lord, we lay burdens on others when you're trying to bless them. We don't want that to be our portion. We don't want to live that way. And so, Lord, if if there's any of us here tonight and we've been stubborn, Lord, we've been pride-filled, we've said, I didn't do anything wrong or that's not my fault or, you know, I'm not like that, Lord. Lord, we lay down that pride right now, that stubbornness, and we come clean before you. And like you were longing for Saul to just say, Lord, I blew it. Lord, we make that confession now. And for everyone that is in their heart that's doing that right now, Lord, it's just saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I messed up. I blew it. Will you please forgive me? Please cleanse me, restore me. For every one of your dear children tonight who are doing that, Lord, will you wash them? Will you cleanse them? Will you remind them of your promise? Will you remind them that they're loved? Will you remind them, Lord, that if we hope in your mercy, Lord, (laughs) we have great confidence. Thank you for your great mercy, Lord. Showered upon us tonight, we pray. That we might be those who bless others, that are a blessing to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.